The How Is This Movie podcast is supported by listeners like you. Go to patreon.com slash movie. There you can pledge as little as a dollar a month and gain immediate access to a number of bonus episodes. I need to take just a moment and thank Richard Cintron and Richard Sternberg for both becoming supporters of this show. Thank you both so much. Hello everyone, welcome to How Is This Movie. My name is Dana Buckler and thank you for taking just a little time out of your day to listen. Be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at How Is This Movie. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash movie. You can always email me with questions or comments at hitmpodcast at gmail.com. And finally, if you're enjoying the show, please take a moment and leave a review on whatever platform you choose to listen. November 7th, 2016 marks three years since I started doing this little show about movies and film history. And what a three years it's been. When I first started doing this show, like most first-time podcasters, I really had no idea what I was doing. The audio quality in the first few episodes was so bad that in most cases you could barely hear the conversation. And it was that poor quality that resulted in next to no downloads. I was able to track the listener data and was frustrated to see that no one was listening. In the very early episodes of this show, we would discuss a new release. I remember myself and my co-host would go see the movie in question on a Sunday morning, then rush to our makeshift studio, record for two hours, then I would rush home and begin the editing process, which in most cases would take up to five hours. After about seven or so episodes, I hung up the headphones and honestly gave up. I was really disappointed in myself. You see, I love movies and I want to share this passion with others, but no one was listening and the fault laid solely on me and my lack of ability, or so I thought. So by February of 2014, the podcast was no more and I began to convince myself that, hey, at least you tried and now you know that podcasting isn't for you. All this changed in March of 2014. I was talking to a friend of mine, Jonathan. As always, we were talking movies, and the subject of Back to the Future came up. I mentioned that Michael J. Fox wasn't the first person cast in the movie, and that, in fact, Eric Stoltz had filmed around 90% of his scenes before being replaced. Jonathan looked at me and said, you know, that's the kind of show you should do. Tell people stories about the film instead of reviewing it. I remember looking at him and saying, you know what, you're right. And I took it one step further. Why don't you join me on the show? Jonathan agreed, and we met at Starbucks the very next day. We spent hours there that day, coming up with topics to cover. And by the time we left, we had five episodes planned out and ready to go. Two days later, we got together at his house, set up the recording equipment, and produced our first episode together, The Rise and Demise of the Video Store. It needs to be noted that Jonathan's also a musician who had a great background in audio engineering. He was gracious enough to take the time to teach me a few basics when it came to sound engineering. Once that episode went live, within a day, we started getting some positive feedback. People began commenting on Facebook and Twitter that they really enjoyed the nostalgic look at the video store experience. This positive feedback served as the ultimate motivator to keep going. And over the next couple of months, Jonathan and I record several more episodes covering everything from Batman, Star Wars, the infamous Hollywood Blacklist, and the history of the Motion Picture Association of America. Every episode got more downloads than the previous one. The show began to really take off, and I started to realize that I finally have the podcast I wanted to do. We were covering history, talking about movies, and still expressing opinions on the topics. It was great. Late in the month of May, Jonathan told me that he was moving to Nashville. Now, this wasn't a surprise. I always knew at some point he was going to move to Nashville. I was happy for him, but at the same time left wondering, well, how are we going to be able to continue the show? The recording part would have been possible via Skype, but the long hours of research that we did together, well, that just wouldn't happen. Days after he left, I once again was unsure about the future of this show. The idea of doing the podcast solo hadn't occurred to me. I mean, 
Who on earth would want to hear just me talk? The more I thought about it, the more I began to think, you know, I think I can do this. I'll just do everything that Jonathan and I did by myself. So I went to Starbucks with an iPad, my iPhone, and some paper, and began to research my first solo episode, Top Gun. Now, writer Epps went on record very early and stated, before they even bothered to try to write this film, it was useless unless there was Navy involvement. There wasn't even a point of trying. They, Epps felt... And he, he conveyed it strongly to Bruckheimer and uh, Simpson. You couldn't shoot this kind of film in front of green screens. You'd have to be using the real thing. And you got to remember, this was the early 1980s. There wasn't even a hint of CGI effects yet. So the task of getting the Navy on board was left to producer Jerry Bruckheimer. After many calls and many meetings with the Navy's top brass, it still wasn't clear whether the Navy would participate. A few years back, when the Navy was involved in the 1980 film, The Final Countdown, this was the film where a modern-day aircraft carrier is time-warped back to 1941, a week before the attack on Pearl Harbor, and has a chance to prevent the attack. I think this film is still streaming on Netflix. I may be wrong. It's been a few months since I've seen it, but it's a very interesting film, and uh, it's actually not too bad. This was actually the first film to feature the F-14 Tomcat. Well, both the pilot and the commanding officer for the aircraft carrier used in filming the final countdown found themselves in some very, very troubling hot water after accepting gifts and cash from the film's producer. This was still a very sour note for the Navy. So the condition was set forth that the only way the Navy would allow full access to its jets, aircraft carriers, and the Top Gun school was if that Simpson and Bruckheimer brought on a military advisor that was no longer on active duty. Now, looking back, what's interesting about that episode was that I answered listener emails and I talked a lot about other things before getting into the history of Top Gun. I even commented way back in that episode about how much I didn't like the Marvel films. It's amazing how some things never change. I will admit that I cringe a little bit listening to that first solo episode, but I still leave it up there on the main feed because it represents the shift in the podcast from having co-hosts to just me. I still keep in touch with Jonathan, and I know he's listening to this. So Jonathan, thank you so much for all that you did to keep this show alive. I honestly think if it wasn't for you, I wouldn't be recording this today. I will be forever grateful. Now for the rest of this episode, I want to play you some of my favorite moments from the past three years. From the guests I had on the show to some of my favorite theater stories. So sit back and relax and enjoy this look back at the history of How Is This Movie. The second episode that Jonathan and I did was a look at the history of the MPAA. I tell a story about my own experience dealing with them. You fast forward to 2000, 2001, 2002, there's a new technology out there that the MPAA is again firmly against, and this time it is a real threat, and that is online piracy. Now, they took online video piracy so serious that they eventually had the power to literally reach out and touch somebody. And I'm going to give you an example At an here. individual level. At an individual you level. The, you have a great story when it comes to this, and I think it's one that a lot of people have experienced too. Well, what they did, before I tell that story, what they w- initially did was they sent, they, they thought they would try scare tactics first. When they suspected somebody of illegally downloading and sharing movies, they sent a cease and desist letter to them. And imagine you, you open up your mailbox and there's a letter from the Motion Picture Association of America saying, you need to stop or we're going to sue you. That didn't work. Eventually, they got to the point where technology was able to catch up with the people that were illegally downloading and sharing these films that they were able to, to, to really, now they could really press you. At an individual level. At an individual they level. Could, they, could, they could get you. They could. And I'm going to explain first 
I'm going to explain a personal experience that happened to me that lets me know how powerful the MPAA is. 2009, I wake up random Saturday morning. I go to log on to my, I'm thinking I'm checking my Facebook, email, whatever. My internet is not working. To set the scenario up, I'm living in an apartment with myself and I've got a roommate. Now, it's not unusual. It's not unprecedented for my internet not to be working. So I go through all the usual, you know, unplug the router and the modem and hook that all back the up. The usual suspects. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm going through my little mental checklist. Okay, so that's not working. Interestingly enough, though, my cable was still on and my internet and cable were bundled together. So what? now I'm asking the question, what the hell is going on here? So I call the cable company. This particular case, it's Cox Communication. I call them. I give them my inf- information, personal information. And the lady on the phone goes, well, Mr. Buckler, I'm going to transfer you to our security department. Security? I said, security department? That's all I can tell you. And I, next thing you know, I'm, I'm transferred. And the guy's like, Cox Communication Security Department. This is Roger. And I'm like, hey, hey Roger, how are you? This is, I gave him my information. And I said, uh, he goes, well, your internet has been turned off. We've had to suspend your internet. I said, for what? Well, the Motion Picture Association of America has filed a grievance against you for illegally downloading and sharing a movie, specifically what happens in Vegas. I s- now this is where things take a real like odd turn. I'm like, what are you talking about? Now, I'm going to be honest with you. Maybe back in 2003, 2004, I might have had LimeWire on my computer and downloaded some music and everything. It- but you don't remember downloading uh, those films. <coughs> No, don't. Not only do I don't do. Not only do I not remember. I don't even have any of the BitTorrent programs. I don't have any of that stuff on my computer because I think you and I both take the same stance that we're we really are anti piracy. Like, oh yeah, I think we're firmly. I think we're about artists getting money. This is in the music industry. Get, getting money for your. I product. tend to sympathize with the studios when it comes to that. I more, do too more because if they, the, if the more money they make, the more movies they can make, and it's yeah. I think it's better for all. Anyway, that, so it, so 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 I firmly take the stance that I have no idea what the hell this guy is talking about. I've never downloaded anything illegal on on my computer since you know moving into this apartment. I I just I don't. What happens in Vegas? That's that Ashton Kutcher. Oh God, no no that was not me. So he says, this is how it's going to work. Your internet has been suspended until you contact us. We are now going to reinstate your internet with a verbal warning. The warning is that you have, if this happens two more times, the second time you will lose your internet for a year. The third time you will never be allowed to have internet through our cable company again. So the MPAA at an individual level, like I've said already, can can swoop down and pinpoint exactly what you're doing and say, if you don't stop, we're going to shut off your internet. Now, this is pre-Edward Snowden NSA collecting data. This is 2009. This is five years ago. So I was finally able to get to the bottom of... Oh, good. So you figured it out. Was it someone like stealing your internet, using it for facetious purposes, or what was, what was happening there? The irony of the situation was it was my roommate. Uh, apparently, he had gotten real into the whole BitTorrent downloading craze, and he, he had tons and tons of movies downloaded. So it took about two or three hours of convincing him the severity of... Well, so, so the internet was in your name. He was the one Absolutely. using the BitTorrents. And the MPAA has filed, I have one grievance filed against me by the MPAA. So let's just put it like this. If you're downloading and sharing movies, even to this day, and you think they don't know about it, you're wrong. You're absolutely wrong. They know everything you're doing. 
They absolutely every single thing. They've probably listened to this podcast. They're probably listening to it as we're recording it. Somehow they they are. <laughs> so they know it. So they know it. They're a powerful organization. I grew up with a childhood fear of Freddy Krueger, and in the late '90s, while at Universal's Halloween Horror Nights, I finally faced that fear as an adult. I was now afraid of a terribly burned man with a red and green sweater who had a glove on his right hand with razors attached to the fingers. And worst of all, this was a man that could get you when you were most vulnerable, when you're asleep. Freddy Krueger would be the person that forced me to sleep with my light on for years. The person who, no matter how many movies featuring him that I would watch, even the ones that he became more of a comedian in, I would still be scared to open my eyes whenever he was on screen. The fear was something I kept to myself. I couldn't let my friends friends know that I was afraid. The ridicule would have been relentless. Everything came full circle for me in 1998. I was at Universal Studios in Orlando, Florida. I was there to take part in their annual Halloween Horror Night Spectacular. This is where the entire theme park is transformed into a series of haunted houses. The first haunted house I went into gave you two options in which way to enter. You could go left, and the house would give you a tribute to classic movie monsters, Dracula, Frankenstein, the mummy. Or you could go right, and the house would give you a tribute to modern horror movie icons, Jason Voorhees, Michael Myers, Leatherface, Pinhead, and of course my nemesis, Freddy Krueger. Well, I wanted to go left... My friends insisted we go right. Again, I have no intentions of letting them know that even at the age 20 now, that I was scared to go that way. So we went right, made the first corner, walked down a hallway, and wouldn't you know, the first thing we come across was life-size wax figures of all those famous icons. Everyone got very close to get a better look, inspecting them over, and remarking at the level of detail. Come closer, Dana, one of my friends said. Feeling very squeamish, I slowly approached the Freddy Krueger wax figure. Now something started to happen. I slowly became confident. I was staring into the eyes of the person that caused me so many sleepless nights. I mustered up the strength and shouted four words. Fuck you, Freddy Krueger. I turned around to see if my response was audible to my friends, who hadn't noticed the vulgar greeting I had for Krueger. When I turned back, to my shock, Freddy's head was tilted in a different direction. And before I could register what was happening... His arms rose up and he began to walk towards me. Now, I've been scared more than a few times in my life, but this was a different type of fear. I didn't slowly walk backwards. I went into full sprint mode and ran right out the front entrance of that haunted house. And as I look back, he was chasing me. Freddy Krueger, the boogeyman of my childhood, was now chasing me through Universal Studios. Now, after what seemed like minutes... The reality is it was probably more like 15 seconds. He broke chase and returned to the haunted house, which I never went back to. Now, side note, it took me three hours to find my friends who to this day still remind me of that night. And to this day, when the original Nightmare on Elm Street comes on TV and I'm alone with the lights off, I change the channel. When Jonathan and I did a two-part episode on the history of Star Wars, we covered a lot of facts and histories. Things got really interesting when we began to discuss the infamous Han shot first controversy. One of the scenes in the original Star Wars that sets a tone 
for Han Solo that lasts throughout the entire trilogy. Oh, yeah. And, and this is a horse that we has already been beaten and pulverized for the better part of this last decade. But did Han shoot first? For those who haven't seen the film in quite some time, there is a scene right after Luke and Ben Kenobi have negotiated the terms for Han to fly them to Alderaan. They leave. They exit. And Han is getting ready to leave. And he is confronted by a bounty hunter by the name of Greedo. They sit back into the booth and they have a bit of a discussion about, you know, you know, Han, you know, he needs to be turned over to, ja- uh, to Jabba the Hutt. And um, the Hutt, by the way, the entire time, Greedo has got a pistol, uh, um, excuse me, a laser blaster pointed at Han. And the camera pans down and you can slowly see Han reaching for his blaster. And then, bam, Greedo's down. And it was that entire swagged out, swashbuckling, don't give a fuck attitude that made Han Solo Han Solo. Every kid was like, oh, my God, this guy is awesome. Yeah. And so so and so we went we went from 77 to 97 we went 20 years with that in the back of our mind that that you know he's got this real like don't mess with me because i you know i i I'm not going to sit around and wait for the outcome. I'm going to create my own outcome. But then here comes the quote-unquote divine creator who says, no, that's not how it happened. Now, Lucas has gone on record. I've read a few articles where he was interviewed, even in so as recently as 2012. And there are video interviews of him talking about say, this, too. Stating th- that Greedo always shot first, but the way that the film was edited in 77, you weren't able to give that impression. So the question I want to ask then is, if you don't see Greedo shoot first in the film and you go 20-something years thinking it's a certain way, does it just then become that way? Does Greedo shoot first? Whether Lucas says he did or not is one thing, but what we see, what millions of fans have have seen is Han taking the first shot. I have to interrupt for a moment because we have a How Is This Movie exclusive. Fortunately for us, a rogue bounty hunter with an 8mm camera was in the Katina the night of the shooting, and we have exclusive footage for you the listeners of the houses movie podcast dan do you want to roll the roll the tape here all right let's let's look clearly at the trajectory here now look if you look at the two angles right here okay just just from the way that han is sitting he's sort of got he's laid back now he's got a nice sort of casual swagger about him and there he's reaching for his gun. I see no movement from Greedo whatsoever. I'm looking directly at his trigger finger. This is an amazing angle right here. Yes, Greedo is, is still as a statue right now, speaking in his strange language. Oh, and there's the shot. Yep, there's there the it shot. is. Okay. okay. And, and look, you can clearly see Greedo's head. It's look. It's going back into the left. Yes, back into the left. Back into the back left. into the left. I think. I think the verdict is up here, folks. Han shot first. Absolutely, because and no, no. Here is pardon the pun. Here is the smoking gun right there. Han's gun is smoking. Greedo's is not. We can put this to bed. Yes. This is done. All right, let's go ahead and stop that footage real quick. Okay, so now that we're able to get past that. One of my favorite documentary filmmakers is Billy Corbin. His films include Dogfight, The U, Square Grouper, Limelight, and probably what he's most famous for, the Cocaine Cowboy series. In this clip, Billy tells me a story about John Roberts, who is one of the biggest cocaine suppliers in the world. Short of them ever finding that money, uh, you know, that, that John had buried sure. out in the Everglades. Uh, although the IRS also a very funny story, a great story about getting out of prison and going to a strip club. He had a uh, he had a, um, a safety deposit box at a bank stuffed with a million dollars in cash in a safety deposit box. Uh, and he gets out of prison. He goes right to a strip club because that's that was John's thing. And he meets this girl uh, at the club, one of the dancers, and he's trying to impress her. And he says to her, he says, have you ever seen a million dollars cash before? She says, no. He goes, I'm going to show you a million dollars cash. 
So they get into, I think, her car. <laughs> I don't know that he had a car. And they drive to where uh, to the bank, and there's a whole new shopping plaza where the bank used to Oh, be. no. <laughs> he goes, oh, shit. So he goes to a payphone. He calls the bank's uh, uh, 800 number, and he says, oh, this is Mr. Smith or whatever fake name he had put the, the uh, safety deposit box under. And he says, you know, I had years ago, I had a safety deposit box here at this bank, at this branch. It's gone. Oh, don't worry, Mr. Smith. All of the safety deposit boxes were safely removed and moved to our other branch just a couple miles away when we redid the bank and blah, blah, blah. And he said, there's just one problem. You have an outstanding bill with us of X number of hundreds of dollars, whatever the amount was, plus late fees. And he said, no problem. Just tell me where to go. They give him the address. He and the stripper race over there. He says to the stripper, listen, I need a couple hundred dollars <laughs> to pay the late fees and the back bill on the, but I'm going to pay you right back as soon as we take the safety deposit box out. I'm going to, I've got a million dollars in cash in there. And she says, no problem. She gives him the money, I presume, in $1 bills. <laughs> and he goes into the bank. He pays. Uh, they go in. They take the safety deposit box out. Uh, he notices two things. First thing he notices is there's red tape around the, the box as they slide the drawer out. And number two, he notices it's a lot lighter than he oh, left it no. <laughs> in, in weight. So they set it down, they open it up, and there's nothing inside but a letter on IRS letterhead that says, Dear Mr. Smith, if you wish to discuss the contents of this safety deposit box, please call agent so-and-so at this number. And John went and called his lawyer who said, call it back taxes and forget about no it. We're not kidding. calling the agent. There's nothing to discuss. And, and, and that's because uh, people often ask when they see the movie, what the hell happened to all the money? And that's a lot of it, you know, they lost in Panama, you know, when, yeah. when, when America took down Noriega and, you know, uh, and, and uh, a lot of it, he lost buried in the Everglades and some of it lost uh, into the IRS. Filmmaker Jim Hemphill, who's been on the show a number of times, talks about the time he interviewed Wes Craven. The 25th anniversary of A Nightmare on Elm Street, you interviewed Wes Craven. Right. What? Tell me about that conversation. How long did, how long were you guys, uh, how long did you guys chat for that particular interview? For those listening, I'll be providing a link in the show notes that will bring you to that interview that you can read it. So talk about that interview. Yeah, we, we talked for about 45 minutes. And as I said, I knew, I, I, I knew Craven, you know, casually since Gosh, somewhere probably around 2005, I, I used to uh, write for a now defunct website called darkworlds.com. It was a horror site. And I had written pieces on several of his movies in conjunction with their DVD releases. Uh, when they put out People Under the Stairs and Serpent in the Rainbow and Shocker and Hills Have Eyes, all of those, all of those in the mid 2000s came out in, on DVD. And I had written uh, pieces on them, and I sent them to. Cra I emailed Craven. I found e Craven's email was listed in uh, the DGA's got member guide or whatever. And so I just sent him an email and said, "Hey, I'm, you know, I'm a filmmaker and a writer, and I'm a huge fan of yours, and I thought you might enjoy these pieces." And so I sent him links to the the articles, and he wrote me back, and he enjoyed them, and we kind of stayed in touch. And and every once in a while, he would invite me to a screening of one of his movies. You know, like I saw Cursed before it came out and a couple others. And so we, you know, we sort of stayed in touch and were friendly over the years. And then about not too long before the 25th anniversary of Nightmare on Elm Street, I was, uh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry to interrupt you just for a second. We're saying 25th. It was the 30th, right? 
it, it was the 30th. Oh, you're probably, gosh. You know, and yeah. I'm just going to correct that. I'm so sorry. It was the no, 30th right. anniversary. Because I'm, you're right. I was like, wait a second. The 30th anniversary <laughs> was last year, or was two years right, ago. Why yeah, would, right. why am I saying 25 years? So everyone who's right. listening, I'm sorry. I meant the 30th anniversary. So. Right. Well, you, I forgot, I, you know, I forgot too. But, but, so yeah. So, so somewhere around, um, I guess it would have been in the fall of 2014, I started doing a little bit of writing for Filmmaker Magazine's website and, uh, you know, they, they were interested in having me interview directors. And so since I had this connection with Craven, I emailed him and asked him, you know, would you like to be willing to do, uh, an interview on, on Elm Street? And he said yes. And so we, you know, we talked about the movie for about 45 minutes and, uh, it was, you know, it was great. I mean, he's, he was one of those directors who, you know, is everything in person that you hope he'll be. I mean, I think sometimes, you know, that you can be a little bit scared to meet one of your heroes because it's very crushing if you meet someone who you revere and they turn out to be a jerk or something. And, and Craven was the exact opposite of that. I mean, he was just a very articulate and, and sweet man. And, uh, you know, needless to say, I was very, very glad I'd had that conversation with him, you know, a year later when he passed away because I, you know, I, I, it didn't even occur to me to think we'd ever, I mean, I know this sounds crazy, but I, you know, I just never thought there would be a world where we, we wouldn't have it. One of my all-time favorite podcasts is We Hate Movies. In this clip, host of the show Andrew Jubin and I talk about a few films and ask the question, are they overrated or underrated? So this is going to bring us to what I call the overrated section. And this is just five films that are cemented in pop culture. And I just want to know if you personally think the film is overrated. You have three possible answers. Yes, no, or pass. The first movie is, is Forrest Gump overrated? Yes. Okay, excellent. Is Fight Club overrated? Uh, I, that's tough because it's one of those movies that people watch the wrong way. So in a way, even though I think, uh, no, it's a yes. And I can, I can actually show some work on why this is a yes. It's because, uh, in New York City in the East Village, there is a bar. This bar is called Durden's. And inside Durden's is a bunch of stupid, silly fight club shit all over the place. <laughs> and this person is a person who has clearly watched that movie the wrong way. Uh, so yeah, to a degree, fight club is totally overrated. Okay. So the next, next film is, is Pulp Fiction overrated? No. Is Avatar overrated? Absolutely. Absolutely. Can you want to uh, speak a little bit more on that? It is, you know, it's funny because it was a movie that when it came out, we were all kind of gaga over the tech, um, you know, myself included. Uh, it was, I hadn't really been going in for the 3D stuff. And then I saw that and I was like, oh, that's kind of cool. And then the next day, I remember hearing someone someplace say that that movie changed their life. And I thought, well, that's a pretty silly thing to say. Uh, and I think, clear, I mean, that was like, what, 2009? So we're like six years out on this thing. Guarantee you that movie doesn't hold up. Uh, and if anything, if it's a thing where now Cameron is trying to like make this these sequels in like 65 frames a second or whatever he's talking about trying to do. I mean, it's just, it's an overrated movie. Did you happen to see the Hobbit in the, uh, was it 48 frames per second? I did. I told this story on the show a couple weeks ago. I was, uh, yeah, I went to see it because there was Star Trek into darkness footage. If you went to the 
high frame rate 3D, which I didn't want to do. I knew it was going to be terrible. But again, you know, this day, you know, these days I'm 30 years old. I'm out of the closet as far as being a Star Trek fan goes. So I was like, you know, fuck it, man. I'm going to go check it out. And I waited out in the cold in betwixt people that were dressed up like hobbits and wizards and speak in fake languages that they have no business knowing how to speak. And, uh, you know, I saw my Star Trek footage and then that movie started and I was like, man, I am just watching a three hour video game cutscene. And it was the absolute worst experience I've ever seen uh, a movie be for me. It's not the absolute worst movie I've seen in a theater. It's not the absolute worst movie ever made. It's the absolute worst movie going experience I've ever had in my life is the high frame rate 3D Hobbit. I mean, again, this was, I mean, it wasn't available where I'm at in Florida. Or, I mean, it was, but I wasn't prepared to drive three hours to, to Tampa to go see it in high frame yeah, rate. Yeah, you made the right call. Yeah, no, um, I just, <laughs> I, I just, I, I, but there's part of me that just wants to see what that looks like. I just have to know now. Like, I have to know because I've heard so much negative talk about it. And I just, you know, you just, you want to know. I got to know what it looks like. But I- yeah, it's, I, I can see that curiosity for sure. The closest thing I can relate it to is, uh, and I, I don't do this, but I know a lot of people that do do this with podcasts that they listen to. Do you ever listen to a podcast like on like a one and a half speed kind of a thing? I, I personally haven't. I'm, I've, well, not intentionally. Occasionally, sometimes I'm listening to it, but then I'm like, oh, this doesn't sound right. But never, but I do, you're right. I, there are people that that's how they, grind through podcasts is on a one and a half speed so like that kind of like manic feel your ears get like that sort of manic feel is what your eyes get while watching high frame rate nonsense happen on screen and in 3d as well well now i mean that was the thing too is it's hard enough to make 3d good High frame rate 3D, I mean, it just makes everything look even worse. So it was, it's, it's horrendous. It was a terrible decision that they made. I have told a number of theater stories throughout the history of this show. A few of my favorites I will share during this episode. In this story, I talk about going on a first date. In 2009, I was on a first date, a good old fashioned dinner and a movie date with a girl named Jennifer, not her real name. We had dinner at a small bistro had a couple of drinks, and I thought a decent conversation. After dinner, we headed to Beagle Cinemas. Now, it's important to note that we drove in separate vehicles on this date. As we walked up to the box office, I said to the cashier, two for the hangover. I was hearing great things about that movie, and I was really looking forward to seeing it. As I reached for my wallet, Jennifer quickly tossed a credit card to the lady and paid for the movie. I, of course, objected, insisting that I pay for the movie. She smiled and said, thanks for buying dinner. The movie is on me. By all accounts, we were off to a great start that night. I passed on concessions, but Jennifer bought some candy and a soda. We made our way into the theater, found two seats, and settled in for the start of the movie. Now, here's where things took a turn. The candy that Jennifer bought was in a cardboard box. But inside the box, the candy itself was actually wrapped in a plastic wrapper. And as the trailers were playing, all I could hear was this. As she struggled to get one chocolate-covered peanut at a time, I looked at her and smiled and politely whispered, You know, it might be easier if you dump the candy out of the plastic wrapper back into the box. She looked at me and shrugged with a, What are you talking about look? Oh well, the lights go fully down and the movie starts. We've got some good news and we've got some bad news. The good news is we found your Mercedes. <laughs> That's great news. That's great. Yeah, it's over at Impound right now. We picked it up at uh, 5 a.m. this morning, parked in the middle of Las Vegas Boulevard. Huh. That's weird. Yeah, that is weird. There's also a note. It says, uh, couldn't find a meter, but here's four bucks. 
The bad news is we can't get you in front of a judge until Monday morning. Oh, no, uh, officer, that's just impossible. No, we need to be in L.A. tomorrow for a wedding. You stole a police car. We didn't steal anything. Um, we found it. If anything, we deserve a reward or something, like a trophy. I see assholes like you every day. Every fucking day. Let's go to Vegas. We'll all get drunk and yeah. Woo-hoo. Woo-hoo. Let's steal a cop car because it'd be really fucking yeah. funny. Think you gonna get away with it? Not up in here. Not up in here. Oh. Uh. Now I love The Hangover. I think it's an extremely funny movie. But what happened during my first viewing was anything but funny. As the movie begins and the laughs start, someone in the theater was laughing particularly loud and repeating the funny lines of dialogue out loud. In the first few minutes of the film, we see Zach Galkin, uh, yeah, I can't pronounce his last name, getting his measurements taken. Then the camera goes to a shot where you can see behind him, and he's not wearing any pants. The person in the theater yelled out, Oh my God, he's naked. He's naked. I can see his ass. Oh my God, that's so funny. Oh my God. And this continued throughout the first part of the movie. Every time there was a joke, it was repeated back louder and louder. Other people in the theater were turning around to look at this person. One person even yelled, will you shut up? Only to have the joke repeater yell back, you shut up. Now, I know what you're thinking. Dana, you're a movie theater etiquette defender, and in 2009, you were in your prime years of protecting people against such acts. What did you do to stop this? Well... The main issue was that the person was sitting right next to me. It was Jennifer that was the culprit, and as you can imagine, I was so far sunk into my seat that I couldn't see the screen, only the back of the seat in front of me. To say I was embarrassed is not a strong enough word. I didn't see any of these warning signs leading up to what was happening. Dinner was quiet and casual, and like I said, we had a very pleasant conversation. But what was happening now wasn't something I was remotely prepared for. I turned to her and whispered, Boy, you're really enjoying the movie. She looked at me and smiled, then turned back at the screen and continued to yell even louder. 30 minutes into the hangover, and I couldn't have told you one thing that had happened on screen. I excused myself to go to the restroom. I got up, and as I was walking out of my row, other patrons were looking at me in disgust. I mouthed the words, I'm sorry, I'm so sorry, over and over again to each individual. I didn't have to go to the restroom. Instead, I was pacing up and down the hallway, thinking about what my next move was. What do I do? I mean... I don't know her well enough to ask her to calm down. And man, she did pay for my ticket. I was in a bad spot. I looked at the exit doors, and I'm sure it was just in my head, but they were glowing, calling to me, saying, just go, Dana. Just go. I was out of options. I couldn't go back in there. I couldn't put myself through that anymore. I took a deep breath, and for some strange reason, quietly snuck to the exit door. I was the only one there, but I quietly snuck to the exit door. I looked back. No one was around. I knew that once I went through those doors, there was no turning around and that I would be branded an asshole for life for what I did by Jennifer and anyone she spoke to. But that was a chance I would have to take. I pushed hard on the door. The cool evening air hit my face as I proceeded from the theater. Now, I had to have been in the hallway for at least 10 minutes before I made my decision. And as I was walking from the theater, I kept looking back. As I got closer and closer to my car, I was sure she'd be right behind me. I made it to the car, got in, and drove away. Some of you might be thinking that was a pretty shitty move on my part, but you didn't experience what I experienced. And just to be clear, I didn't leave her stranded. She had her own car. I proceeded to ignore the calls and texts that I started to receive that night from her. The final text from her read something, something, you're an asshole, have a good life. When I got home, my roommate asked me, how'd the evening go? I proceeded to tell him the tale. 
He looked at me, laughed a little bit, and then said something that caught me off guard. So, Dana, I guess you won't be going to your favorite bar anytime soon. Why's that? Oh, shit. That's right. She just started working there. I guess it was time to find a new hangout. A couple of years later, I was in a theater watching Bridesmaids. Within five minutes of the start of the movie, I heard something that was strangely familiar. There was a person in the theater repeating all of the jokes that were happening on screen. Again, people in the theater were turning around to catch a glimpse of this person. I myself turned around, and sitting four rows behind me was Jennifer, up to her old tricks again. I think more importantly, she was sitting with a guy who by that point was covering his face with his hands and shaking his head in disbelief. Now, knowing that this wasn't an isolated incident and that her riffing on the film would continue, I stood up, turned around, gave a friendly salute to the gentleman who was sitting with Jennifer, and promptly walked out of the theater. You know, the podcast community is very strong. Annalise, co-host of Dark Angels and Pretty Freaks podcast, has been a huge supporter of the show since the beginning, and I was very happy to have her on and come talk about her show and her career working at Skywalker Sound. In this clip, she tells a story when she saved the day for a famous filmmaker. Could you tell me about any experiences when you were working there where things may have gone a little, uh, pardon the pun, haywire, and um, <laughs> you were called to action? You had to save the day. Right. Um, well, there's, of course, little goings on here and there on a daily basis where, you know, like things break down and they need something to continue working or something's broken. But um, I would say the biggest one by far um, was when um, Barry Levinson was on the scoring stage and they were recording a 90-piece orchestra for the movie Sphere. And this was a long time ago. I'm just showing my age right now. But um, they uh, rented some gear for this recording and apparently not all of the cables and gear showed up. And uh, it was after hours. And so I actually got a call at home and they asked if I could come in and make this cable, make this work, and if I could do it as fast as possible because the the orchestra is waiting, Barry Levinson's waiting, everybody's there. And so I said, uh, yeah, you know, uh, okay, sure, no pressure. So got in the car, got down there, and uh, had to walk in there and uh, say hi and take a look at what they needed. And then I went and made it. I, I don't remember and exactly. Let me just ask you there, because when you walk into the room, like when you say hi, everybody's looking at you. Like Yes, the, the, it's like the, the bar scene where the needle scratches yeah. and everyone goes, what? And, th- and I'm like, hi. <laughs> um, but more importantly, when I was done and I brought it back um, – I said, I actually called and said, okay, so I'm done. They're like, yeah, yeah, bring it up. I'm like, no, I'll just uh, set it outside on the table. And they're like, no, 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 just bring it in. I'm like, I, okay, I really, I don't, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm having the red stapler. I'm like, I don't, I can't, oh God. And so I, uh, I don't remember how old I was. I think I was, uh, you know, like 28 or something like that. And I had to walk in there and uh, they all turned around. They're like, oh, thank you so much for doing that. Great. And this is great. And I was like, okay, well, um, I should probably hang out to make sure it works, right? And they're like, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, do anything. Oh, yeah, I'll just hook it up right now. We'll make sure it works. I'm like, yeah, okay, cool. And then uh, Barry Levinson actually turned around and he said, uh, yeah, thank you for doing that. I really appreciate that. It's like, yeah, you know, it's not a problem. I'll be outside. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you know, what do you say to that? I don't know. <laughs> but that was the craziest thing I think that's ever, that someone's asked me to do. <laughs> Let me ask you this question without mentioning any names. Um, are there certain directors? producers that live up to the reputation one way or the other oh um i can't answer that okay we'll cut that i'll cut that whole part out you don't have to worry that, that although that's actually funny you could probably just leave that in there because that's funny that i can't answer i'm like i can't answer that okay that's perfect i'll leave i'll leave that i'll leave that now if there's one franchise i've covered more than any other it would be the star wars saga in this episode i tell the story of seeing the phantom menace during its midnight release on Thursday, May 18th, I arrived at the multiplex around 8 p.m. 
and to no surprise, the lines had already begun to form. I looked at Joey and said, look, man, waiting in line is all part of the experience, and this is something we'll be talking about for years. Joey rolled his eyes. You see, he had other ideas. There was an Applebee's restaurant in the same plaza, and he asked me if I wanted to grab a few beers before the movie starts. No way, I told him. I didn't want my brain polluted, my vision slightly distorted from my first time seeing the most anticipated film of all time. Joey smiled and said, okay, man, save me a seat. And off he went. Now, I live in a normal-sized town in Florida, population about 50,000, and I remember recognizing a lot of people from town in that line. The next three and a half hours were filled with lengthy discussions about the original trilogy, and we all gathered around one gentleman who told tales of seeing the first Star Wars in Los Angeles opening weekend 77. I struck up conversations with complete strangers, theorizing about what we thought the plot would be. Looking back on it, I really did have a great time waiting in line. At 11.30, the usher walked up to the velvet rope that was blocking the entrance to the theater, and he grabbed the right side of the rope and removed it, clearing the way to the theater. A cheer erupted in the line, and we made our way in. I found two seats in the middle, halfway up, and to this day, I've never seen a theater get so packed so quickly. Joey stumbled his way into the theater around 11.45. I had to stand up and wave my arms for him to finally see me. When he sat down, the smell of cheap beer was overwhelming. I looked at him kind of puzzled and said, how many did you have? He replied, ah, five or six. It's like, Jesus, man. I said, you know how many times you're going to have to go to the restroom? I can hold it, he proclaimed. At midnight, the lights dimmed and another roar came across the theater. We were then treated to at least eight trailers of which Joey made two restroom trips. As the last trailer ended, the lights got darker. Then you heard the oh-so-familiar drums and overture of the 20th Century Fox logo. Then comes the Lucasfilm logo. Then a black screen. Silence for just a moment. The next image on screen read, A long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. And wait for it. Bam. The Star Wars logo erupts on the whole screen. The crowd goes crazy. There were chills running through my whole body. For a brief moment, everything was great. I made it. I was witnessing a new Star Wars movie, and the feeling was glorious. Then the movie started. The opening scroll, and everyone's freaking out. And it's like, this is, this is incredible. I mean, whoever thought this day was going to come. And that was one of the great moments of anybody's movie-going life. Then the movie starts. <laughs> Already I knew. It's like just the, the, the language of the crawl was wrong. It just didn't feel right. But I'm like, okay, I'm going to stay with it, you know? It went from this glow up here in your heart, and then it descended, and then it went down, and then it just sat here, right? And I just remember, you know, thinking, oh, my God, it's, it's, is it really this, is it actually this bad? It just felt like being slapped in the face with a wet fish. It was like... What? This could suck? You know, I'm starting to deflate a little bit, but, you know, I'm still with Star Wars. It's going to, you know, okay, you know, Jedi's not great, but, you know, whatever. It's going to be good. It's going to be good. What I was used to seeing, you know, from watching the originals in theaters were people cheering. There's big applause moments, you know, big laughs. This was literally an almost, like, silent screening. Maybe it was something different. Maybe we didn't see that. Maybe this is a Star Wars film that we need to watch again. That was the first time in my life that a movie has ever properly disappointed me and gutted me to the point where I had to lie about my feelings to save face. I mean, I even remember interviews on the local news and they're all saying, well, yeah, but we got, we're going back again tomorrow. 
there was still a hope, and I don't think it really suck, it sunk in for everybody until they saw it that second time. Because everybody saw it a second time. We all saw it again. It only took about 15 minutes for me to realize that there was something very wrong. And of the many issues I had, the most glaring right away was the CGI effects. This didn't look like a Star Wars film I was used to seeing. This was a digital Star Wars. This was a CGI love fest. Frankly, nothing looked real. Now, at the time I was watching and I tried to trick myself into thinking that the effects were passable. I kept saying to myself, just focus on the characters. Follow the story. But the story was flat. It didn't have the magic I was hoping for. And as for the characters, they were wooden and lacking depth and emotion. And since many of these actors in the movie, including Liam Nielsen, Ewan McGregor, and Samuel L. Jackson, are very good actors, the fault can't lie with them. They were following the direction of George Lucas. Now, all is not lost in The Phantom Menace. The final lightsaber battle is pretty damn good. But honestly, it's too little too late. When the movie was over, Joey got up and ran out of the theater, knocking people over on his way to try to get to the nearest restroom. I was still sitting in my seat sort of zoning out during the end credits. Occasionally, I would look around the theater, and I saw several people just sitting there. I can only assume that they were thinking the same thing I was. What just happened? I got up, walked into the lobby, and immediately ran into Joey. We didn't say anything. We both just headed for the exit doors. There was a deafening silence amongst a crowd of nearly 300 people. When we got to Joey's car, again, without saying anything, we both got in, he turned the key, and we drove off. Now, in the town where I live, there's a 24-hour mom-and-pop's restaurant that Joey and I would traditionally visit after watching a big movie event. We planned to do the same after Star Wars. I finally broke the silence and mumbled, You know, you can just drop me off at my house. It's late. Joey replied, Yeah, that's cool, man. Once I got to my house, I was still trying to decompress from what I had seen. It took me a while to get to sleep. The next morning, I woke up, and my phone began to ring and ring and ring. I was getting a barrage of phone calls from friends who wanted the 411 on the new Star Wars. Now here's where things get a little interesting. I didn't have the heart to tell my friends how I really felt. The Star Wars universe is a magical place and I couldn't be the one to tell them that the universe is now gone. Just like I would never tell a child the truth about Santa Claus. I couldn't tell the truth in this case. I lied. I said I liked it. I think somewhere deep inside I was trying to convince myself that it was a good movie, that my expectations had been so high that I would have never been satisfied. When Jonathan and I tackled the Batman franchise, I told a story about seeing Batman 1989 in the theater at age 11. The gamble paid off. It paid off in dividends for the company and for the actors, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. But I'm reminded in 1989 about my experiences seeing that film, and it goes back to... This is a fantastic story. Yeah, no, no. I was 11 years old. You know, Batman was the biggest film of 1989. There wasn't anything coming close to it. You have everyone around you wearing Batman, carrying Batman merchandise. Absolutely. You yourself have some Batman merchandise. Uh, absolutely. When I, for Christmas that year, I got a Batman coffee cup. Parents got me a Batman coffee and, cup. And I didn't even drink coffee. 11, Eleven years old. Eleven. Let's have our listeners just reminisce one for one second about what it's like to be an 11-year-old young man getting ready to go see the new Batman flick. It was the biggest thing ever. I can, I can honestly say, looking back on it, it was the most anticipated movie of my life. So, you know, it had been out for a couple weeks. My parents, they were having a date night where they were going downtown, downtown Halifax, where I'm from. The idea was they were going to drop my brother and I off at the theater. We were going to get to go see Batman. No parents, just two, you know, an 11 and 12 year old. That must have been the greatest thing in the entire world to have that kind of independence to go to the movies away from your parents 
I mean, they were going to give us money to buy concessions. We were we were grown you were ups. set. You were we, set. We we were we were good to go. So we got to the box office. The lady selling the tickets. She's my mother proudly proclaims two tickets for the six thirty Batman. You're at the gates. I mean, we're there. We're there. And and by, and by the way, in the theater, Batman paraphernalia everywhere. I mean, everywhere. It was the people standing in line had Batman shirts on. I'm sure this was before cosplay. This was really before people dressed up. But I promise you, this was like a Harry Potter movie. There was so much Batman memorabilia going on. People were just going nuts. My mother says, two tickets for these two young gentlemen right here. The lady leans up over her counter to look down at an 11 and 12 year old boys and says, I'm sorry, but you can't go into the theater without your parents. No. Oh my goodness. God, no. Now you have any idea what that means? It was within our grasp. I mean, it was there. My folks who were not canceling their dinner plans looked at my brother and I and said, well, you're going to have to watch something else. Now tell me you at least saw something else that was good. So my mother says to the, my mother says to the lady that at the ticket counter says, well, what movies can they see? Because everything was either rated R or PG 13. And the lady goes, well, we have a 645 showing of Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, which is rated G. God, Jesus, no. That's like, that's literally going from like the top of Mount Everest and just falling all the way down. No, no, you didn't make it to the top. Your your, your feet from the top and then you get caught and you're just down. You're down the mountain. Um, So my brother and I saw Honey, I Shrunk the Kids and I've seen that movie one time in its entirety, and that was that night in 1989. I've never seen it again. I'm just so sorry. So as you can imagine, when the movie let out, my brother and I are heading to the rendezvous point to meet my parents. My parents, who obviously had had a nice dinner, they were in a great mood. My mother leans down to my brother and says, how was the movie? And my brother, without batting an eye, says, it sucked. It was awful. And she looked at me and I said, it was pretty bad. And my parents sort of looked at each other and they said, well, are you guys tired? We said, no, but let's all go see Batman. Oh my God. And so that was it. That was a big, big deal. So we proudly walked up to the ticket counter, the same ladies there. And I look at the lady and I hold up four little digits and I say, four for Batman at nine o'clock, please. And the lady sort of had a little half, half grin. Yes. And we went in. And I saw the movie. You made it. And I'm going to tell you right now from those opening credits where the the, the title screens are, are appearing on the screens and it looks like you're going through some type of trench. You don't know what's going on. And it eventually opens up into the Batman symbol with Danny Elfman's iconic score playing. Uh, that was it. I mean, that to me, there was never going to be a better Batman movie ever. Or so I thought. The first theater story that I told on the show was the one where my sister and I went to see Titanic. The fourth option to see a film in my town is a big 16-screen multiplex. It's run by one of the two big theater chains in America. For this small rant, I won't use the theater's real name. Instead, I'll refer to the theater chain as Beagle Cinemas. Now, Beagle Cinemas has been a thorn in my movie-watching side for years. I have watched more than 200 films in the past 16 years at the Beagle Cinemas. And looking back, I can honestly say that more than half of those films have been a bad to awful experience. There are far too many to list, so I will share two experiences that really stick out. Now, in 1997, I was visiting my parents who were living in this part of Florida. 
I live about 25 minutes north of Orlando. At the time, I was still living in Canada. It was a week-long visit just after Christmas. On one of those evenings, my sister and I decided to go see Titanic. It had been out for about a week so far, and being that we lived in Halifax, a city that is home to three graveyards that victims from the disaster are buried at, we grew up knowing the story of Titanic very well. In fact, some of the scenes from the film were filmed in Halifax. When I arrived, it was a packed theater. We found seats towards the front and settled in for the three-hour event. For the first two acts of the film, everything was going great. The film was entertaining, and I didn't feel that its long-running time was an issue. Now, in the film, shortly after the ship strikes the iceberg, we get our first images of people in peril. I noticed something. A sound was coming from directly behind me. A sound that wasn't making sense. On the screen, people were perishing. And I can hear laughter right behind me. Not the kind of laughter like when your friend whispers an inside joke. No, this laughter was directed at what was happening on the screen. I did the tried and true tested method of doing the three-quarter turn as to let them know that I'm aware that you're laughing. Upon that turn, I zeroed in on the two individuals in question. Two young girls, maybe 14 or 15 years old unaccompanied by any adults. My move didn't work, and still the laughter continued. At this point, my sister, who is a few years older than me, was also getting annoyed, as were other patrons close to us. But nobody did anything. They just let it continue. When we get to the scene where First Officer Murdoch shoots himself, they didn't just laugh. They clapped. What? What is happening? I quietly passed my leftover popcorn bag to my sister and told her to keep it. Cleared my throat. My sister looked at me and said, don't do it. I whispered back, someone has to. I stood up, turned around, and yelled, What the fuck is so funny about this movie? Would you mind shutting the fuck up for the last 20 minutes, please? Suddenly a round of applause swept over the theater. You tell him, buddy, was heard from a few rows back. And of course, this didn't go over well with my sister, who was to say, at the very least, a little embarrassed. But I had saved the day, or at least the last 20 minutes of the film. last thing I remember was the two jokesters leaving the theater. Now, there were many more occasions to come where people would be talking and words would have to be exchanged, albeit most times politely. The second incident that really sticks out was in 2005. By this time, I was becoming very disillusioned with the theater-going experience. I had set rules for myself. Never, ever, ever see a movie on a Friday or Saturday night during its opening weekend. Your odds are better to win the lottery than to not be disturbed while trying to watch a film. Second rule, never watch a serious drama during a matinee show. You see, here in Florida, the area I live in, There is a massive, massive retirement population. If I have learned anything, it's that those retirees, they like to go to the matinees because the tickets are cheaper. I tried it a few times, but all I heard the entire time was, what? What did he say? What's going on? Who? Over and over again. If you're going to go see a good drama, pick a Wednesday or Thursday night after 7 p.m. when most of them are already in bed. Now, you can see a movie on opening weekend. Your best bet is the 10 or 11 a.m. showing. Chances are teenagers and other unruly individuals will be in school. And in 2005, that's exactly what I thought was the case when I purchased my ticket for Peter Jackson's King Kong. I entered the theater for a 10.30 a.m. showing. I arrived 25 minutes prior to the start, found what I thought was just the best prime seating, and took a seat. Over the course of 20 minutes, my worst movie-going cliches were happening in front of my face. Groups of teenagers sitting in different rows, yelling back and forth. And then, oh no, a train of five-year-olds 
six-year-olds, each holding the other's hand, walking single file. My breathing got heavier. I started counting. Six, seven, eight, twelve, fifteen. My God, fifteen six-year-olds and one preschool teacher assigned to be a chaperone. But it didn't stop there. Here came the old folks. It was my worst nightmare come true. What I hadn't planned for was the fact that it was during Christmas break. A perfect storm of everything wrong with going to the theater. But I was there, and the trailers had started. I decided to soldier on. The film started, and almost on cue, a laser pointer started flashing on the screen. You've got to be kidding me. Behind me was an elderly couple. The lady was asking questions about the film. Where was it filmed? I don't know. Did Peter Jackson write the screenplay? I don't know. Did you see the original King Kong? I don't know, said the man next to her, clearly getting frustrated with that line of questioning. My blood was boiling. I stood up, this time keeping quiet, and I walked out of the theater. I walked to the info desk and asked for a manager. When the manager arrived, I stayed at my case. Now, I didn't ask for a refund. I simply wanted a ticket to go to another showing at a later date. The manager told me that they had found the person with the laser pointer and he didn't think that I was giving any other valid reasons for a new ticket and urged me to go back in and just try to enjoy the movie. I walked out of the complex just shaking my head. Now, the reason I shared two of these stories is because with the cost of going to the movies these days, it's no wonder that theater ticket sales have been on a decline for the past 10 years. Sure, the movie theater industry wants to blame it on piracy, but I take exception to that. If myself... A person who loves movies has to set rules about when to go to avoid the multitude of issues involved with watching a film. Then I know I'm not alone. I understand that theaters have to make money. And honestly, I'm okay with paying the prices. But for that amount, which averages around $25 per person, I want the kind of guarantee that a chain like the Alamo Draft House offers. That you, the true fan of film, will be able to sit down and not be bothered by anyone else. Let's not forget that the Alamo Draft House kicked Madonna out of one of its theaters for texting. They cited company policy when asked why they removed one of the most popular singers of all time. Easily one of the coolest moments for me was when I was introduced to director Phil Giovanno. Phil's resume includes 3 O'Clock High, U2 Rattle and Hum, State of Grace, Entropy, Gridiron Gang, Chris Tucker Live, and most recently The Veil, starring Jessica Alba and Thomas Jane. In this clip, Phil tells me about being discovered by Steven Spielberg. And then I left USC with what they called back then a 480, which was a 30-minute um, student film. And that was called Last Chance Dance, which actually you can see uh, on my website, uh, com. Last Chance Dance is uh, posted there under student film. So if anyone ever wanted to watch the student film that about four days after we screened Last Chance Dance, my phone rang or at my parents' house and it was Steven Spielberg calling me. And I, uh, my mom said, uh, Philip, it's Steven Spielberg. And I said, what? And I got on the phone and I thought it was my friend screwing around with me. And I was like, yeah, hello. And it was really Steven Spielberg. What's going through your head? Tell, tell me, take me through that very moment, please. Well, I didn't believe it. You know, I really did think it was my friends just, you know, goofing on me and, and, uh, you know, just screwing around with me. But as soon as I heard his voice, you know, I'd seen him enough on TV and, and, and various things. And then I, I knew his voice kind of, which I was surprised by. And he's like, hello, Philip, it's Steven Spielberg. And I just was like, and literally I was speechless. I mean, I literally just could barely speak. I, I was stunned and numb and my head was spinning and I was like, hi. 
And he said, oh, I saw your film, uh, you know, Kathy Kennedy and uh, Frank Marshall and Bob Zemeckis and I uh, were on a plane together and uh, we popped in your film on the plane and watched. I was like, you're watching Last Chance Dance on a private jet flying over America. I was like, I couldn't, I didn't even know what to think. And, and I still kind of thought it was a bit of a joke, like maybe a, a, an impersonator or something. But anyway, he said, you want to come over to Amblin tomorrow morning? And uh, are you available? <laughs> I said, yes, I am. And 10 a.m. the next morning, I was uh, sitting in Steven Spielberg's office. He offered me, uh, he was then doing the show Amazing Stories. And uh, they had just started producing that. And he offered me their Christmas special, which is called Santa 85, which is also actually on my website. People can see if they want to see the very first thing I ever directed. Very, very different from The Veil, I can promise you that. And I, of course, didn't even need to read it. I said yes, then and there. And um, that's how it all began. You know, I, I ended up doing that amazing story for him, and then that went okay. And then he offered me another one, which I did with John Lithgow, which was called The Doll. And John won an Emmy for that, for Best Actor. Then, this is kind of funny. So then Stephen gave me a script that was entitled After School. And I read it, and it was, you know, about a bully trying to beat up this kid in high school. And very John Hughes-esque, you know, very much more in a John Hughes tone a pretty in pink tone than, than three o'clock high ended up being. And I read it. I took it home and read it. So it was my first directorial offer ever. And I, um, while I liked it, I, I didn't want to do a high school movie. So I, I wrestled with it. I just, I had, and remember there were a lot of them being made at the time. This is in the, this is in the mid eighties. So you're now talking, Cynthia, you're talking 1986. So I was like, oh, everyone's making high school movies. And uh, I just didn't, you know, I felt like, how am I going to stand out against John Hughes? And I was all worried about my, fr- you know, I, I put a lot of pressure on what my first film was going to be, which in retrospect was pretty silly. But I, I, you know, you just, you're a kid and you think it matters. So I passed. You passed. I passed. And I went to Stephen the next day and to Kathy. Kennedy who was running the show and with him. And I said, you know, I really want to make a movie with you guys. And I'm so thank you, but I'm writing a script that I really want to make that I'll show you. I'm almost done with it. And so I did have something else that I really wanted to do. And they said, okay. And they were really cool about it. They said, okay, okay. And so then, you know, the day went by and I went home that night and I was laying in bed awake. And I thought to myself, did you just say no to Steven Spielberg to make a movie for Universal? And like my, I, 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 my eyes like jumped out of my head. I couldn't sleep all night. I waited like 7 a.m. the next morning. I drove back down to Amblin. I sat there outside his office in a little chair, just I'll never forget, waiting for him to come in the door this mortal fear that he had given it to somebody else. And um, he walked in and I said, Stephen, hi, I'm so sorry. I, I want to say yes. I want to say yes. I'm so sorry. I want to say yes. He's like, great, great. He was like kind of chuckling and like thought it was, he was quite amused by the fear in my eyes. And, uh, and that's how three o'clock I got done. These were just a few of my favorite moments from the past three years. I would be remiss if I didn't mention a few people. First, the two times that Margot Donahue joined me on the show to discuss The Force Awakens and then her career as a publicist were awesome. Margot is one half of the excellent podcast Book vs. Movie. Highly recommend it. I also have to mention Patrick Bromley, host of F This Movie. His podcast was the first one I ever started listening to on a regular basis more than five years ago. It was a thrill to have him on as a guest. I also want to thank actor Austin James for coming on the show two times. 
Austin's story about how he broke into the business is truly remarkable, and I highly recommend you check out both of our conversations. I'm often asked, what's the best part of doing this podcast? All the movies I watch, the filmmakers I get to talk to? Well, to be honest with you, the best part of doing this show is easily the feedback I receive from you, the listener. I will often spend hours working on an episode, and when it's done, I cross my fingers when I upload it and hope everyone enjoys what I do. Throughout the years, the amount of positive feedback I have received has been overwhelming and, to be honest with you, very humbling. It still amazes me when someone from the other side of the world takes time to reach out and tell me they enjoy the show. It's the best motivator to keep this thing going. So here's to three years, and hopefully many more to come. My name is Dana Buckler, and thank you all so very much for listening. Hello? Grandma, it's Jonathan. How are you? Oh, Jonathan, dear, I'm doing great. My bocce ball team just won the championship. Oh, Grandma, that's great. I'm glad to hear that. Listen, I want to ask you about something. I want you to go and read a couple of parental reviews from the Star Wars movie page and tell me if you think that your grandchildren will be allowed to see it. Okay, I suppose I can do that. In the opening sequence, a rebel ship is pursued by an Imperial destroyer, which both release laser fire. What? What is a tractor beam? What is an imp? Oh, great, Grandma! The Imperial star destroyers use tractor beams to to fight against the rebel the, the Rebel Alliance. Rebel, Jonathan, are you smoking the marijuanas again? You know your father went to go see that film when it came out. He came back smelling like skunks. Grandma, I promise you, I haven't been smoking any marijuana. Can you just read some more for us, for our fans? They love you. They love you, Grandma. What are you talking about? Just Darth Vader lifts a man off by the floor and, and rips out his throat? Jonathan, I don't think I could let my grandchildren see such a terrible film. Well, okay, Grandma, I suppose it is a little violent. Go go play some more bocce ball. Thank you for reading this for us. Oh, goodbye, Jonathan. Dana, you're, you're a beautiful voice. Thank you so much. Bye, Grandma.